ancient and infamous city. Jericho was one of the oldest cities in the world. It's been extensively excavated in the 20th century, beginning first in the early 1900s and then again in the 1950s. Uh, If you visit Jericho today, you'll see those great trenches that uh, Kathleen Kenyon drove all the way to bedrock. And uh, she discovered uh, levels in Jericho that go all the way back to 7,000 B.C. It uh, has for almost 9,000 years been a stronghold of, of evil. Uh, interesting place to visit, interesting place to study, interesting place to think about, which is what we must do with these texts. George, Mac- George Montgomery, uh, George uh, uh, MacDonald said that... Uh, Uh, We must know the meaning of these texts, otherwise our lives are a failure. Interesting, strong words, and yet he's right. He's saying precisely what God said to to Joshua. You you must eat the word, that is, you must imbibe it, take it in, assimilate it, meditate upon it, think upon it, uh, think it out, think out the meaning of it, so you can make your way successful. And the converse of that, of course, is not thinking about it all, thinking very uh, very shallowly, in a very shallow manner about Scripture, taking someone else's word for what it means, rather than thinking it through for yourself. So if we do not want our life to be a failure, we need to understand the meaning of, of, this, uh, of this text. Now, uh, actually, the story begins with the last paragraph of chapter 5, when Joshua encountered the angel of the Lord in the suburbs of, uh, of Jericho. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 5 reads, Now it came about when Joshua was in Jericho, literally, that uh, he lifted up his eyes and beheld a man standing opposite him with his sword drawn. And uh, as Brian uh, uh, taught last week, this is none other than God himself and the person of the angel of, of the Lord who had come to take over, not to take sides, but to, to become the commander-in-chief, to, the, to determine the uh, tactics and strategy of, of, the, uh, of the siege. It's interesting to me that he encountered the angel of the Lord in Jericho. Now, you have to understand the layout of these ancient cities. Uh, normally there was a fortress in the center, somewhat like a Greek acropolis, uh, a fortified uh, wall defense system in the very middle of the city, which was normally very small, and then there would be farms and houses that sprawled out for miles in all directions, sort of uh, an ancient version of urban sprawl. And uh, whenever the city was under siege, when it was under attack, the people would run into the city, they'd button the city up, and uh, the city would be defended, the people would be protected in that, in that inner citadel. If you visit Jericho today, you'll find just a very small mound of dirt about 300 yards long and about 100 yards wide. So the citadel itself was quite small. But the suburbs would be very large. They have, uh, they guess that the population of Jericho at this time was four to 5,000. So it was a fair-sized city uh, by ancient standards. And uh, the people in the suburbs had left their houses. They'd deserted their farms. They'd gone into the city. The, the, the city, they'd shut the gates of the city and and uh, buttoned the place up. And Joshua went into the suburbs that night, uh, was reconnoitering the city, thinking through the strategy of attack. And looking up at those great walls, they were probably uh, 50 to 60 feet high, some 150 feet thick in their base. As I've said before, more like, more like an earthen ramp than a freestanding wall. And uh, Joshua was thinking through the uh, tactics 
and the strategies of uh, conquering the city. Now, there were various ways they went about it in those days. They, if they had uh, war machines, they'd roll their battering rams up to the wall and try to knock it down from the base, or they'd fire the gates, or they'd try to subvert the city in one way or another. Uh, uh, Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedonia, said that uh, no city uh, is unconquerable if you drive a donkey with, uh, laden with gold up to its gates. Sometimes they would try to bribe their way into the city, or they'd, they'd work their way through the water system, as David did in Jerusalem. He sent uh, Joab through the, uh, through the tunnel from which they, uh, they took water, broke his way into the city, and subverted it in that manner. All sorts of tactics and strategies. Sometimes they would starve them out. They'd simply surround the city and wait for them to die of thirst and hunger. None of these tactics would have worked in this case. They didn't have the time. Israel didn't have the equipment, but they had to conquer the city. They didn't have any option. They could not bypass it. They had to take the city. Well, the reason's obvious. If you ever visit the place, the route into the interior of, uh, of Canaan, the highlands, uh, the high country that they had to reach, led right by Jericho. Uh, the closest analogy to it would be... Uh, an attempt on our part to conquer Bogus Basin. If we wanted to uh, mount an attack against Pioneer Lodge and Bogus Basin ski area, in order to get up there, you have to go up Bogus Basin Road and you have to pass Mr. Simplot's house. And if Mr. Simplot's house were Jericho, you'd see something of the strategic importance of that city. You could not get by without confronting the enemy. Uh, and if you did slip by, then you were in danger of being cut off from behind. They could cut off your uh, source of supplies. So they had to take the city. And those of you that are military people would understand uh, the, the difficulty. They simply had to conquer Jericho. They had uh, no options. And uh, as Joshua was making his way through the suburbs, thinking about that uh, impossible task, the angel of the Lord uh, uh, specified the method of attack. Let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. In other words, victory was highly unlikely. The city was totally inaccessible. It was an impossible mission. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. I was struck, as as you must be, by the... uh, Arrangement of those two verses. Here's an impossible mission, and God says, what's your problem? (laughs) Jericho is yours. Uh, You're fighting a battle that's already won. Jericho is the symbolic battle for all battles in the land of Canaan. Though they had to struggle and take the land foot by foot, the land was given to them by promise. This was an unrevocable promise. The land is given to you. Jericho is yours, though victory seems highly unlikely. And here's the way you'll do it. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. And then he specifies the entourage. They were down in Gilgal, which was about two or three miles uh, from Jericho. You can, you could, we don't know where Gilgal is today, but if, if we know the general location, if you stand at Gilgal and look up that long alluvial slope that leads up to Jericho, you, could, you can see the location of Jericho even today. It's only a couple of miles from Gilgal. And uh, they were told to march around the city. The, uh, the army went first, the ar- uh, an armed contingent, followed by the band. The priests uh, had their instruments. There are at least three different kinds of horns that are indicated here. And they struck up the music and uh, uh, put a little bounce in their step. And uh, then behind the, the band, there was the ark. 
which, as you know, represents the person of God, indwelling the people of God. Uh, Just a little box carried by the Levites, covered with a piece of blue cloth, but that box represented the presence of God in Israel. And you'll notice throughout this account that the ark is the center of attention. It's the center of attraction. All eyes are on the ark. So you have the army, and the band, and the ark, and then everybody else. Men, women, children, all the non-combatants. Senior citizens, you can imagine what this looked like. You know, mothers with strollers and, and uh, dogs and uh, a father with a kid in a backpack and a llama with grandmother on it. And uh, they, were, they were making their way up to Gilgal. And we don't know exactly how many, uh, what size the nation of Israel was at this time. But they were quite large. And it would take uh, probably when the first... When the, when the army got back to Gilgal, the last people were leaving, leaving Gilgal. Here, they were strung out for several miles up this uh, slope and then around the city of, Jer- uh, of Jericho and then, and then back to Gilgal. And uh, Jericho, uh, Joshua was told, this is how you're going to take, take Jericho. You just take a stroll around the city with the ark. And Joshua says, all right, I understand. This is a little bit of psychological warfare. We're going to psych the uh, Jerichoites out. And uh, I understand while they're watching, at the end of the day, we'll send the non-combatants home, the women and the children and the clergy. We'll get them out of our, out of our way so they don't get trampled. And, uh, and then we'll fix bayonets and we'll charge. And God says, no. No, you, 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 you go back home. And, Jer- and, and Joshua says, what, what are we going to do when we go back home? And God says, well, whatever you would normally do. Cut the grass. Uh, go get your hair fixed. Go to the grocery store. Go down to the office. You'll probably have some time to work. You know, it doesn't take very long to walk up to Jericho and back. And it's whatever you normally do. Just go ahead and do it. Oh, I understand. Okay, the second day we're going to charge. No, no. Second day, you, you do exactly the same thing. Uh you shall do it for six days. Uh, also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, they shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. That is a, a, a shout of victory, a victory cry. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. It will crumble. And the people will go up, every man straight ahead. There's this unequivocal promise of victory before the event. You're fighting a battle that's already won. How do you do it? Well, you just take a stroll with God, and you go around the city once. And then what do you do the next day? Well, you take another stroll with, with God, and you go around the city the second time. And you do that every day for six days. And on the seventh day, you get up real early in the morning because you've got a long trek ahead of you, and you walk around the city seven times. And, and then you shout victory before the event, and the walls will fall down. That's how you're going to take Jericho. Never been done before that way. But that was the strategy that uh, was enjoined on, on the people of God. So Joshua passes on this information to, uh, to the people. That's in verses 6 through 11. You'll notice again, I'm not going to read this section, but you'll notice again the significance, the importance of the ark. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into camp and spent the night in the camp. People went, the priests went, the army went, but the important thing was the ark. And that's what, what 
what the, the author of the book of Joshua wants to stress, that it was God who encircled the city. They just took a walk with God around, around Jericho. The verses that follow tell what actually, uh, actually happened, verses 12 through 21. To read it seems redundant to us because we're not used to this form of storytelling, but uh, the Jews love to just tell a story over and over and over again, and they drag out the final point to the very end and build up tension and, and suspense until finally you, you get, get the final note. Let me read it for you, beginning with verse 12. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. They are doing precisely what God asked them to do. They didn't second-guess the angel at all. And the seven priests, carrying the seven trumpets of the ram of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. That's the sound of, of the band that they marched to. And the armed men went before them. That's the army. And the rear guard came after the ark. That's all the rest of the folks while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the city. They did so for six days. Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. Now really it's not very far around the city. As I said, it's only 300 yards long, 100 to 125 yards wide. It takes just a few moments to walk around it. So, I, you know, it, did, it took all day probably to get the whole whole nation around there, but it uh, wouldn't take too long. And it came about at the seventh time when, when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. In other words, again, you're fighting a battle that's already won. He's given you the city. Shout victory before the event. That'd be like uh, those of you at the BSU game last night shouting at the end of the third quarter instead of at the end of the game. And the city, verse 17, and the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, lest you covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, so you would make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. People had gone by the city of Jericho for... 7,000 years, well, 6,000, 5,500 years, perhaps. And had never felt that they had to declare war on it. The city had been, uh, had been assaulted a few times, but in general, people just melded in. They went to the city and enjoyed what the city had to offer, and, and uh, they, they, they accepted its uh, hospitality, and some of them settled down and stayed there. Wonderful spring right there by the city of Jericho, so it was a wonderful place to live. They just settled down. But the people of God declared war on this city because there was something drastically wrong with it. Some, there, were, there was something about it that, 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 would, that would destroy the people of God if they, if they didn't take the city out. That's, that's the point. They had to see the city as God saw it. I've commented before that uh, the city of Joshua was named for the moon god, Yerik, who is the uh, most... Uh, Perverse and perverted deity in all of Canaanite mythology. All sorts of, of gross sexual practices that were carried out within the city. It's estimated that most of the people had some kind of, of sexually transmitted disease and all kinds of awfulness. For 400 years, God had appealed to the people that lived in Canaan and Jericho and Ai and 
Hatzor and all these other cities had appealed to them to listen to the good news that God loved them and that he had come to earth to save them. When Abraham was sent into that land, he was told to, to, to uh, preach the name of the Lord. Everywhere Abraham went, he built his little altar and he pitched his tent and he made proclamation in the name of the Lord. And God sent his own people into slavery for 400 years while he waited for the Canaanites to, uh, to repent. In fact, uh, uh, Abraham is told in Genesis 15 that his people would be in slavery during that period of time until the iniquity of the Amorites was full. God appealed and appealed and appealed to these people. And finally they shut God out with, with some rare exceptions, Rahab and, and her family. But, but they had shut themselves off from the people of God. They would not accept uh, their, their Lord. And so there was nothing salvageable, nothing redeemable, nothing worth saving any longer in, in the city. They were to declare war upon it, no detente, no peaceful coexistence, no capitulation, no acceptance of their lifestyle. It was to be under the ban. So, we've been led up to the point of the shout, and uh, then there's a little bit of a flashback, and and then the results of the shout are described in verse 20. The people shouted. wall still stood. And not a crack in the wall. They had done this absurd thing, walking around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, they all uh, stood in a ring around the city and they shouted, shouted victory. And uh, the wall fell down flat. In other words, it crumbled straight down. It didn't fall inward, didn't fall outward. It fell straight down and just crumbled. And the, the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took, took the city. And then they uh, bring Rahab out. You know the story we talked about that some weeks ago. And then in verse 26, Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. With the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. In other words, you are to have nothing more to do with this city. Turn your back on it. Never rebuild it. Walk away from it. It's not worth saving. For 600 years, no one uh, tried to do anything at all at the site. There were some people who lived there, but no one tried to rebuild the, the city. Until the time of Ahab. Ahab, as you know, was the king who temporized with God's word, who just trivialized truth, and who didn't, you know, he didn't take God seriously, and he decided that he needed to rebuild Jericho to defend his eastern borders, and he sent one of his builders, he all over to build it, and uh, this is 600 years later. And uh, you have a very terse description in, in, in First Kings of what happened. He, he rebuilt the city, all right, but he lost two of his sons in the process. So God's not fooling. Not fooling. Did not want that city rebuilt. Interestingly enough, Herod, whom you think would also take God lightly, did not rebuild Jericho on that site. He rebuilt Jericho, but he rebuilt it about three miles uh, to the southwest uh, of the ancient site of, of Jericho because he, he at least took God seriously about this city. The city is worthless, God said. You're not to rebuild it. Forget it. Walk away from it. Let it be. Uh, well, what's the point? What, what can we make out of this, this story? What principles are enshrined here? 
I think Jericho represents those deeply entrenched habits that keep us from enjoying the land. I've said before, the land in the book of Joshua represents the enjoyment of life in Christ. Most of us are living half-hearted Christian lives because we don't take God seriously, and we live in a kind of constant melancholy knowing that something is wrong and we don't quite know what's wrong. Can't get at the real problem. But there's an uneasiness and a restlessness and unhappiness that comes from not living fully in the land and enjoying its, uh, its benefits. We don't know what C.S. Lewis called joy. We don't have what, what Jesus called life. That is, that sense of wholeness and happiness despite the tragedies and the tough times and the, the hard circumstances that we're in. The people that went on to conquer the land suffered a great deal. There was a lot of conflict. A lot of blood was shed in the next 15 to 17 years. Uh, some hard times ahead, but nevertheless, they possessed the land. Now, that's the way the Christian life is described for us. It's not that uh, we're going to live a life of ease and affluence and we're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise to the end of our days. There will be struggle. There will be hard times. Things will happen to us that are, are very hurtful, but we can know joy. We can know life. We can be filled and flooded with a sense of satisfaction and, and the fullness that comes from knowing God and enjoying Him instead of merely enduring life as, as a Christian. And the thing that keeps us from enjoying life is very often one of these deeply entrenched, rooted habits in our life. It can be anything. It can be an obsession with pornography. It can be a preoccupation with, uh, with, with making money, materialism. Uh, it can be a preoccupation with sexual fantasies. It could be a food addiction. It could be some form of uh, substance abuse. It could be a tendency to exaggerate or a temper that you can't control. It's some deeply entrenched, long-standing habit that keeps you from enjoying the land. What do we do with these things? You know, Eugene O'Neill says the best way to handle a temptation is to succumb to it. But, you know, we, we know there's something wrong with that. You know, it, that's not really the approach we ought to take. Well, what do we do? What's the strategy that we can employ to bring the walls down, to get, get Jericho out of the way? We know we have to do it. We have to declare war on these uh, citadels of ungodliness within us. How do we do it? Well, uh, there's some helpful things here. You know, for one, I, I think just, just walking with God helps you to see the evil in these strongholds. Most of us tend to defend them and protect them because they bring us a great deal of satisfaction. But once you get to know God well, you begin to discover that these these, uh, these habits, however we want to refer to them, these preoccupations, obsessions, these compulsive behaviors are sinful and wrong and destructive and counterproductive. And they're keeping us from being what God wants us to be. When you get next to God, you begin to see that. Isaiah, we're told in Isaiah 6, saw the Lord high and lifted up. His immediate reaction was, woe is me. I'm, a man, I'm an ungodly man. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm always saying the wrong thing. And see, we are seen for what we are when we see God. 
And as you begin to put your roots down into God, center on Him, and read His Word, and see God for who He is, He begins to put His finger on areas of our life that need to be claimed for His sake. The Jerichos. Just as He did for the people of God. When, he sent, when, when Joshua sent the two spies into the land, they were told to view the land, especially Jericho. God put his finger on that stronghold because that stronghold had to go before they could conquer the land. And you will find that God will do that for you. Now be very wary of people putting their fingers on those strongholds. I mean, uh, sometimes if two or three people point out sin in your life, you know, they're on target. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that's one way that we can learn. There's an old Yiddish uh, proverb that says if one, one person calls you an ass, pay him no mind. If two people call you an ass, go buy a saddle. And uh, a lot of truth in that. Uh, if one person comes to you and, and points out a fortress of evil in your life, a stronghold, then uh, think about it, ponder it, ask God if it's true. If two or three people come, then you think again, you know, it, this may be an honest-to-goodness problem that, that you need to face. But my caveat is this. Let God put his finger on the issue. He will reinforce what other people are saying. Otherwise, you may be fighting a battle that he doesn't want you to fight, and you're going to be tilting windmills and, and spending a lot of energy uh, without, God's, uh, without God's aid. Uh, for example, Christians may be saying to you, you need to stop smoking. That's what's keeping you from enjoying the land. Well, God may be saying to you, yeah, that's a ridiculous habit. It's, you know, it's a part on your health, and, and, and I don't want you to do that. But I'm not so concerned right now about what you're putting in your mouth, what I'm concerned about is what's coming out. And you have a tendency to exaggerate, and that's what we're going to deal with now. See? So my point is let God put his finger on the issue. He will. My experience has been that he deals very clearly with those issues that he is concerned about. Those vague feelings of guilt come from the evil one. They do not come from God. When God speaks to us, he speaks loudly, unequivocally. We don't miss it. He puts his finger right on it. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what issue is God speaking to me about? Not my brother. But what is God speaking to me about? And then declare war on it. No detente. No compromise. No peaceful coexistence. That is an enemy of God. And by God's grace, I will bring that uh, bring those walls down. That That's the attitude that... That we have to have. And that's what gives us joy. The moment we declare war on these, uh, these strongholds, we begin to enjoy some of the, the life that's in the land. At least that's been my experience. The wall may be there. The city may still stand. But it, when I declare war on it, the light begins, begins to dawn. Uh, one of the Psalms uh, addressed to the king of Israel at the time, later applied to our Lord says this, you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. See, the minute you come to hate the iniquity in your life, you will be, a joint, you will be anointed with the oil of gladness. You'll begin to enjoy some of the fruit of the land. Your pace will pick up. You'll begin to feel more positive, though the walls may stand. Now, that's the first step. Declare war on your Jericho. Don't justify it. Don't defend it. I, whenever I hear gays 
defending their action on the basis of Scripture, it makes me very, very sad. Because I know that as long as they protect and defend that fortress, there is no way out. It's true of any sin in our life. We have to face it. We have to call it what God calls it. And we must declare war against it. Well, assuming that we've done that, how do we conquer? Well, I hope you won't think this is too trivial. But just taking the clue from the conquest of Jericho, what I would suggest that you do is take a walk around it with God. Don't be preoccupied with the sin. Get your eye off the sin. Get your eye on the Savior. Look at the ark. You see, the, the whole story preoccupies us with the ark. It's the ark that goes around the city. The people just trail along after it. It's the ark that does the job. It's God who brings these walls down. Get your eyes off the sin. Stop being preoccupied with it. And get your eye on the Savior. May I say, legalism does not work. Rules and regulations do not work. I've tried it. They don't work. Trying is, is, is utterly ineffective. Get your eyes on God. He's the one who's able to bring these, these strongholds down. Our, our tendency is to, you know, start, you know the minute we, we recognize one of these uh, fortresses in our life, we start making up rules against it. We decide, I'm going to read the Bible more. I don't read the Bible enough, so I'm going to read the Bible a whole hour. In fact, to really show God that I'm serious, I'm going to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and read the Bible a whole hour. And then on top of that, I'm going to memorize Scripture. Because somebody told me once, a verse a day keeps the devil away. So I'm going to, I'm going to memorize, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm going to memorize the whole book of Colossians in Greek. I'm going to start going to church. I, I've, you know, I haven't been going to church lately. I'm going to start going to church. Or I'm just going to grip my teeth and try harder. It does not work. Now, it, reading the Bible is, very, is a very good thing. Memorizing Scripture is a very good thing. Going to church is a very good thing. But the purpose of it all is to get our eyes on the Savior. Get our eyes on Him. And it is not a set amount of verses or a quiet time or disciplines that we impose upon ourselves that deliver us from sin. I have tried it, and so have you. I can see you responding facially. You know what I'm talking about. You've tried it, and a lot of you are just utterly frustrated because it does not work. Why don't we take God's word for it? Colossians 2 says, rules and regulations are of no value in subduing the flesh. What, how much value? Zero, zip, none. They don't work. It's just legal. It's just empty legalism. Doesn't work. Those things are valuable, but their value is that they center us upon God, so that we can begin to depend upon Him to deliver. He is the only Savior. So get your eyes off your sin, and on to the Savior. Let me give you a verse. Galatians uh, three. Let's look at that first. Galatians is in the New Testament. Verse th chapter 3. Uh, if, if you're new to the Bible, if you can find the book of Romans, that's a fairly 
That's a fair-sized book, Romans, and then uh, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians. Verse 1, you foolish Galatians, Paul says. I love J.B. Phillips' translation of that phrase. You idiots of Galatia. <laughs> Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed? Somebody put the evil eye on you. Somebody's shucking you. They're cunning you. They're trying to get you to, to be righteous some other way than God's way. Don't you understand the principle of the cross? It took divine action to deliver us from sin in the first place. You've seen Christ publicly crucified. Now, come on. Do you think you're going to go on and grow in Christ by self-effort? Did you save yourself? What makes you think you're going to sanctify yourself? You see his argument? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How did you become a Christian? By keeping the law? By reading the Bible? By going to church? By memorizing Scripture? No. You just came to God and you said, I am the most dreadful sinner on the face of this earth. Save me. Please save me. And you received the grace of God. Now, he says, firstly, are you, are you so foolish, unthinking is the idea? You know, haven't you thought this thing through? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Think reasonably, he says. Be logical. You began your Christian life by faith. Are you now trying to be perfected by self-effort? How foolish, he says. The only way to change is for God to change you. You grow by faith. Now, verse chapter 5. Verse 2. Uh, as I understand the book of Galatians, the, the emphasis on Galatians in, in, in Galatians is on sanctification. The uh, emphasis in Romans is on justify, uh, justification, how God declares us righteous. Galatians has more of an emphasis on how God works out that righteousness in us, how we begin to uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, that is, as a Christian, if you go back and you're circumcised, that is, you, try, you put yourself under some ritual or rite, some rigmarole that's going gonna, gonna to clean your life up and you know, give you more spit and polish so that you'll, you'll do better. You know, it's, he, he says it's a waste of time. I say to you, if you receive circumcision, some ritual that will, that will make you better, Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, you've laid aside the one resource that God has given to us by which we can grow. And you're on your own. Do you understand that? You're on your own. If you're going to change your life by rules and regulations, you're on your own. Christ is of no benefit to you. Oh, that's, a, that's a dreadful thought. I testify you again, uh, again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That is, as a principle, not that you've fallen away from salvation, but the principle of grace is no longer operative in your life. You're not trusting God to change you. You're trying to change yourself. Now, here is the key verse, I think, in the whole book of Galatians, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting 
for the hope of righteousness. And by hope of righteousness, it does not mean I hope, I hope, I hope someday I'm going to be righteous. Because God has said to you exactly what he said to the people of God. You are fighting a battle that's already won. You are going to be righteous someday. That's the hope that we have. How do we get there? By faith, through the Spirit, we wait. In other words, keep your eye on the ark and just keep on trucking. That's the whole point. That's the story of Jericho, and that's the story of the Christian life. Get your eye off your sin. Don't let it bug you. Don't let it preoccupy you. Don't let it obsess you. Get your eye off the sin and get your eye on the Savior and just keep on trucking. Just keep on walking. Well, what if I fail? All right, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep on walking. And wait. How long is it going to take? I don't know. I don't know. God knows. Delay is always part of the process. Don't look at anybody else. Don't compare yourself with anybody else. You know, very often we have sharing times here and somebody will stand up and they say, God delivered me from alcohol just like that. I became a Christian and he took away my thirst for alcohol. I never had another desire for a drink. Somebody else sitting up there thinking, oh, no, something's wrong with me. I've been struggling with alcoholism for 20 years. I fall off the wagon every once in a while. Why doesn't God do that to me? I don't know why. All I know is that we need to Keep her eye on the ark and keep on walking. And wait, just keep walking around the city. Walk around the city. And wait for God to bring those walls down. When will it happen? I don't know. Maybe not till our Lord Jesus comes back. Either he will come for us or we'll go for him. Go to him. John says, when we see him, we'll be like him. That's our that's the hope of righteousness that's held out to us. And well, what about the, you know, the, the interim? I'm struggling with all these problems. What, what a, well, it's, it's analogous to what happened to Israel when they went into the land. Some of the cities fell down flat. Some they, had, they, they fought for and, and conquered. And as soon as they left, the Canaanites came back and they had to go back and reconquer them. Some of them they could never take. And Judges says, that's all right because that will teach you to do war. In other words, it humbles you. It keeps you weak. It will frustrate you at times. You will very keen, you'll feel very keenly your humanness, and it'll drive you back to God. But one of these days, one of these days, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus, and that habit will fall, and you'll be just like him. You say, well, now, wait a minute. You, know, you sound like all these preachers that you know, come in and tell them i got a problem. They say, go home and just pray about it. No, no, I'm not saying that. You know, there are, there are a lot of helpful things that can be done, clinics various other uh, professional counseling, various other things that can help you. But all I'm saying from this passage is get your eyes off your sin. Don't be preoccupied with it. Because Satan wants to use that to invalidate your life in ministry. He will keep you from progress by getting you focused on your sin. Get your eyes off your sin. Get your eyes on the Savior. And wait. Just keep on walking. Peter puts it like this. Let me read this uh, one passage, and I'm almost done here. If I can find Peter. First Peter 5, right at the end of his book. 
He says, be, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's behind the city of Jericho. But resist him firm in faith, not by rules and regulations, not by self-effort. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, they have their Jerichos too. Do you understand that? I think that's the point to be made of the fact that men, women, children, senior citizens, everybody went around the city. Everybody has a Jericho to conquer. Everybody gets involved in this process. No one is immune. They, they all have their experience of suffering, verse 10. Now listen to this. After you have suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You are fighting a battle that's already won. Get your eye off the sin and onto the Savior. And wait. Just follow him. Keep walking around that habit. Keep asking him to purify you. Put your trust in him and wait. I want to summarize all of this by reading something that uh, I hate to foist my stuff on you, but as I've said before, if I don't quote me, nobody else does. Uh, I have written a book. It's going to be coming out in uh, January or February, published by uh, the Bible Study Hour, Dr. DeHaan's uh, ministry. And this is just one excerpt from it. I want to read it quickly because we're out of time. There's so much righteousness to hope for, so much beyond me, stability and consistency as a husband and father, sincere love for others, purity and humility of heart. A friend of mine once told me that you can't be holy in a hurry, but I must say I want it now. I want to change, rid myself of the harpies that reach for my soul, but it seems I must wait for a while. Time is part of the process. Waiting, of course, isn't passive. There are things to do. Center on Christ, read and reflect on his word, yearn to be like him, ask for his help, but in the end only he can, he can change us. I must confess, I don't know how it works. Change is chaotic, haphazard, better seen in retrospect. I'm told that we can test our faith by the fruit of the Spirit. There must be some measure of tranquility, gentleness, and strength, but I don't know how it's done. Therein lies mystery. I know it can't be done by trying. Legalism is ineffective. I know of no rules or regulations that work. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can't sustain the effort very long. Like Paul, I have a desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it off. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. My flesh is grass, and it's loyalty like the blossom of the field. I make promises I can't keep. Promising, in fact, only makes things worse. Stirring up the evil in me, endowing it with more power. No, striving is ineffective. Righteousness is a free gift from God, which we can and must receive. It cannot be otherwise. In fact, it's said that if we seek the righteousness we hope for by any means other than faith, there's no value at all to Christ, no benefit in being a Christian. We're on our own. So it must be all or nothing. We'll either be changed by him or not at all. We must wait quietly for his work. Wait through the ups and downs of life in its inequities and in our failures. In the ebb and flow of our feeling and affection for him, believing that he is at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Perhaps he'll act soon, maybe later, or when he comes or when we go. 
Some of us are hard cases. We have more changing to do. We've been given more difficult minds and bodies, flawed by environment, indulgence, and bias. For some good reason that only God knows, we may glorify him for a time through difficult temperaments and distorted personalities. But he never goes away. And he never gives up on us. And someday we'll be like him. I know it's true because he promised. Dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be like has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. As Bob Dylan said, God don't make promises that he don't keep. That's our hope. Lord, help us to wait. Let's pray. Lord, we, all of us, come aware of these uh, fortresses of evil that have embedded themselves in our minds and in our bodies. We have both the memory of them and we have their, their effect upon us today, and they continue to, to thwart us and frustrate us and keep us from getting into the high country and conquering the land that is ours by right of inheritance. We, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. And we will wait for your deliverance. We, we want to keep our eyes on the ark. We want to believe in your indwelling presence within us. And we want to walk with you while you bring to bear on these fortresses the, all the power that's at your disposal. And with that truth in mind, Lord, we wait. We wait for righteousness. We ask that through your Spirit, by faith, you'd bring into, into our experience the righteousness that we're hoping for in your own time and in your own way. And in the meantime, Lord, while, we, while we're, we're waiting for you to deal with these issues, we want to continue to be useful. We want to enter into all of that's ours. We we want to experience the joy and the life of, of Christ that will complete us. We ask that that would be so. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.